Thank you all for your efforts to awaken. We all appreciate it. The greatest gift that I've gotten from my years of meditation is that it has brought me into close touch with the mystery of life. After 35 years of doing this practice, I have no answers. I don't think I'm enlightened. I could be mistaken. <laughs> I'm not perfectly happy. But over the years, by investigating this body and this mind and this world, how I see reality, how I create my reality, I feel like I've been given the gift of being brought into an intimate relationship with the mysterious, and that has increased in me a, a sense of awe and wonder about this life that we're leading, that, that none of us have really any answers for, at least not ones that I find adequate. Meditation practice has helped me to break that shell of separateness between myself and the world, and also taught me how to live more and more in the present, in beginner's mind, seeing things as though for the first time, without a lot of projection of my own desires and fears and needs onto the world. And when we can get there, when we can just be there for the world, often it shows itself as this wondrous, magical, mysterious emanation. I mean, just you look around you, you know, we take this all for granted. And yet here we are all sitting here kind of wondering about ourselves. We're pieces of the universe wondering about itself. What are we doing here? I think that it's, it's useful to reflect on the, on the mystery, on the story that we're involved in. And we have such a wealth of new information about who we are in the scheme of things. Modern science, the West, the, the wisdom tradition of the West has given us so many fascinating, uh, humbling, uh, exciting messages about our, our identity. Tonight I'd like to share some of those with you. Some stories from our current understanding of ourselves as a way to bring you uh, more and more into a sense of awe and wonder. As Rumi said, uh, awe is the balm that will heal our eyes. And I just want you to know that uh, this is coming from someone who has been a cynic all his life, struggles with it even now. I mean, but cynicism is so easy, so cheap. To truly be in wonder at the universe is, takes a little work. I asked uh, Swami Muktananda once in an interview I was doing with him that uh, if he did miracles, because there were a lot of Indian Swamis coming to the West doing miracles, and he said, oh no, I don't need to do miracles. I just tell people to feel the blood being pumped through their veins. 
I'd like you uh, just for a moment to close your eyes and bring your attention inward and just feel this pulsing, twitching, sensate organism. What is this? Why is this here? How did you become aware of this being here? It's a very rare occurrence, in our, at least in our neighborhood of the Milky Way, to have beings walking around like this, aware of themselves. Okay, you can open your eyes. Brian Swim, the cosmologist, says, Four billion years ago, the earth was a molten rock of lava, and now it can sing opera. (laughs) How did that happen? And to what purpose? To thicken the plot, perhaps. Einstein said, one cannot help but be in awe when one contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery every day. Never lose a holy curiosity. So to arouse a little bit of your holy curiosity, I'd like to lead you in a reflection calling on our new scientific story of life in the universe. I call this exercise, Be Here Wow. And it's a way to exercise your awe muscle, which is the one that makes your jaw drop open in awe. (laughs) Let's start with the mystery of the cosmos. I don't know if you've seen it, but circulating on the web lately has been some of the top 10 pictures uh, sent back from the Hubble telescope, pictures of the universe. The first one, named number one, was a picture of the Sombrero Galaxy, because it's kind of shaped like a big hat. And in the little caption underneath it said, this galaxy is 125 million light years away. So, you know, I don't know how they got a shot of it, you know, hold still, you know. (laughs) And this galaxy has 800 billion suns in it. Now, we can't even imagine 800 billion marbles. (laughs) I mean, you just can't imagine it. And yet it has 800 billion suns. I am uh, so, I'm amazed by these, this kind of information, and I'm also amazed that more people aren't completely amazed (laughs) that you you don't see something like that and just fall to the earth in in some kind of swoon of of either humility, I mean, because it's got to shrink your significance in the universe when (laughs) either that or if you could see yourself as one with everything, then woo, you're big. (laughs) Another good reason why you should uh, break the barrier between you and, uh, and the world. And the the astrophysicists say that all of this, billions of galaxies full of billions of suns and planets, all came out of the explosion of a tiny dot smaller than an atom. (laughs) A tiny, tiny dot. They, They say it was infinitely dense, and I think when the scientists say infinite, they really mean it, you know, it was like... Uh, but that dot exploded in the Big Bang 13.7 billion years ago today. (laughs) Happy birthday to all of us, huh? There's an image that I love. The, The scientists say that a trillionth of a trillionth 
of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, the universe was six feet in diameter. <laughs> Just get your, your mind around a universe like that, can't you? But also, when you think about it, 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 it if you're part, if we're all part of this, this universe, this Big Bang universe, then it took, you can really figure it took the universe 13.7 billion years to make you. That should be cause for some self-esteem. <laughs> what a project, you know? <laughs> Don't blow it. Now, the, the, the astrophysicists and the mathematicians, have, they have decided that there are many other universes. There may be an infinite number of other universes, um, let alone this, this one that is so big and so full of, of stuff, apparently. Um, and we've always, in the West, uh, up until recently, have had a sense of ourselves being kind of the reason for everything. You know, we're, we were the center of, of everything. It was all human. It's all about humans, you know. Um, but in Asia, they've, uh, in the Asian wisdom traditions, they've always had a bigger sense of what's going on. The Dalai Lama was once asked if they had the Big Bang in Tibetan Buddhist cosmology. And he said, hmm, oh, yes, hmm. But Bang, 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 many bangs, <laughs> many universes. The Hindus, say, the Hindus say that their creator deity Brahma, every time he blinks his eyes shut, a universe is destroyed, and every time he opens his eyes, another universe is created. You can try it for yourself. It actually, it works. We are all earthlings. You know, that's, an, that's part of our identity that we, we rarely acknowledge or feel. But we really are. We're riding on this, this little planet, this little rock, hurling through space. We spin eastward on the Earth's axis at about a thousand miles an hour. We spin through our solar orbit around the sun at about 66,000 miles an hour. The solar system, the Milky Way is orbiting, I mean, uh, the solar system is orbiting through the Milky Way galaxy at the rate of about a half a million miles an hour. And the Milky Way galaxy is speeding at nearly a million miles an hour towards some point in interstellar space known as the Great Attractor. <laughs> and that's not all. Everything attracted to the great attractor is traveling at the speed of 800,000 miles an hour toward another supercluster of galaxies called the Shapely Attractor. <laughs> and you don't even have to hold on. Isn't it amazing? Can't feel it. Can't feel it, can you? I, I love to uh, speculate about the universe. I never used to be interested in science, actually, until I think it, it started when I, I started meditating seriously. And uh, I began to realize that science really was all about me. And uh, ever since then, I've been, I've been fascinated with <laughs> with what they're discovering. And one thing that I really, I really enjoy is to realize that the reality that we perceive, that we call reality, is really a, a kind of a, a trickster, you know, that things are not as they seem to be. And, and especially subatomic physics is telling us that, and 
and also astrophysics. And I mean, the physicists say that the universe is filled with the gases hydrogen and helium. So if the universe is filled with the gas helium, does that mean my voice is actually an octave lower than it sounds to you? <laughs> Have any of us ever heard our true voices? And it looks like there's a lot of stuff here, but there's hardly any, really any stuff here at all because everything we perceive is made of atoms, and atoms are 99.999% empty space. It's really pretty empty. You take the nucleus of an atom and blow it up millions of times till it's the size of a grain of sand. The electron going around that nucleus will be the size of a dust mote, and it, it would be like a half a mile away. There's hardly any matter to matter. So why don't we all just fall through the floor? I mean, what's, this is, this is like a magic act here. What's holding your clothes on? If your body's made of atoms, atoms are mostly empty space. Not only does the emperor have no clothes, the clothes hardly have any emperor. We're optical illusions to each other. As they say in Zen, and they always say something in Zen. <laughs> as they say in Zen, things are not as they seem. Things are not as they seem, nor are they otherwise. I don't know if you've been reading about the Large Hadron Collider that they've started up uh, over there in Switzerland. Pretty interesting. Uh, it's uh, this track of 17 miles that goes around and they, they shoot these uh, particles at almost the speed of light around and then they crash them into each other and they see what, What's at, they're trying to get at what's at the core of everything, you know, what are the laws and how does, how does it all work? Um, they, they didn't start it up right away because there were some people who were worried that there would be a black hole created by their, their process, and it would start sucking up the world, starting with Switzerland, you know, it would, <laughs> like, cheese, cheese, you know. It, but they, they, turned it, they turned it off, and uh, they've actually turned it off now for a while. There's some glitch in it, but they decided to go ahead. That the, the black hole thing was not really a problem. One of the things they want to investigate is gravitons. Did you even know there was such a thing as gravitons? They're, the, they're what makes gravity, and they have no mass but they're going to look at them anyway, you know? I mean, I don't understand these people, but they're doing something important. <laughs> you, can just, you can just tell. Um, because, well, gravity, I mean, gravity is, uh, what a phenomena. Here's, here's the famous physicist Richard Feynman. The world is a spinning ball and people are held on it on all sides, some of them upside down. And we turn like a spit in front of a great fire. We whirl around the sun. And what holds us? The force of gravitation, which is not only a thing of the earth, but is the thing that makes the earth round in the first place, holds the sun together and keeps us running around the sun in our perpetual attempt to stay away. <laughs> Gravity. But they're also uh, investigating dimensions. They, I, they hope to, to actually see some of these other dimensions that they say exist but didn't unfold in our universe. They say there are maybe seven more dimensions that didn't unfold in our universe, which is probably a good thing. I mean, we can barely handle four dimensions, right? Height, width, depth, and time. But just the fact that they're looking for these dimensions made me think about the fact that we live in, in dimensions, in a, 
in a particular space. And it could be very different if some of these other dimensions were here. Um, and it, I mean, and are they, are they kind of firmly in place? I mean, what if wit started to s slip in on us? <laughs> could, you, could you go and prop it up, you know? <laughs> and if you push it out too far, then is it like a house? The height would start coming down? <laughs> These are questions. <laughs> <laughs> these are these are these are issues. <laughs> I I always I have to make him do that once a, a, a retreat. <laughs> dimensions is where birds go to die. <laughs> they just, <laughs> they find that entryway and they just, What's really interesting, and, and so, um, so marries uh, the understandings of, of Buddhism, uh, is the physicists are now saying that consciousness plays a role in the creation of reality. Uh, in, according to the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics, and I quote, there is no reality in the absence of observation. As one physicist put it, when we're looking, things seem to drop into a particle form. It exists. When we're not looking, there's just waves. Probability waves, they call them. So I'd like to run a little experiment here. <laughs> Let's see if this, this works. Everybody look over to this side of the room. Come on. Look over. Now that should mean the other side of the room has disappeared. <laughs> now look, we'll look back. Were you peeking, Tija? <laughs> there is a apocryphal story, maybe, that there's a bunch of llamas in caves up in the Himalayas holding the world together by paying attention. They know that we all have to live through the karma of this life. A haiku. No mind, no matter. No matter, never mind. <laughs> In Buddhism, we talk a lot about emptiness. And, and really, what modern physics is discovering is that it really is empty. At the core of matter, there is energy. E equals mc squared. Everything seems to be in process. Uh, as one physicist put it, matter is just gravitationally trapped light. It's all a light show. I think it's the ultimate irony that in a civilization so thoroughly devoted to materialism, our scientists should discover that matter doesn't even exist. We're like illusions chasing an illusion. Sokni Rinpoche used, used to say, uh, he still does probably, that you, you Westerners have a real problem. You have a real problem. You think everything is so real. 
Jack Kerouac said, happiness consists in seeing everything as a great, strange dream. So let the, let's assume that the world, just for the sake of continuing on, that the world is real, <laughs> that there is a reality out here. And uh, let's look at our, ourselves as a, as a source of awe and wonder. I mean, the mystery of who we are is almost enough, but you're really, the odds against you happening the odds against you being here in this body and with this brain, contemplating the odds of you being here with this body in this, in this brain, are astronomical, literally. Everything had to be just right. I mean, you talk about causes and conditions and karma going, you know, infinitely in all directions. Uh, the atom had to be just exactly the, the nucleus of the atom had to be exactly the size it is, or the electrons going around that nucleus had to be exactly the size they are. If they'd been, there'd been a little very, just the slightest variation in their size, or in the magnetic force, uh, the electromagnetic force holding them uh, apart, or the nuclear force holding them together, they'd been just a fraction of a fraction of a degree more or less. Atoms would have come apart or collapsed. And then no elements would have been created, and no oxygen, no carbon. Then where would we be? We're carbon-based life forms. We're oxygen-breathing life forms. Everything at the, from the beginning of the universe until now had to be just the way it was for us to appear like this in this moment. It's an awesome amount of circumstances, or if you believe in it, uh, some kind of incredible, intricate plan that brought us to this moment. And how could you impute a self in there when you think about everything that's led up to this, to you in this moment? Uh, you know, your body's made of basically of heavy elements that were created in the Explosion of supernova at the, in the beginning of the universe. That, that those explosions created the heavy elements that make up your body. You are stardust. You are gold. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Tasia. Uh, <laughs> and eight other planets were formed out of the same cloud of gases as, as our planet, and yet none of them have any life, at least as far as we know at this point. We happen to be in a planet that's just the right size, and just the right distance from our sun. Our moon helps us keep a stable orbit. If we were just a couple thousand miles, not, not very far, uh, a couple thousand miles further away from our sun, uh, with this size of planet, we'd probably all be huddled around the equator or we'd, you know, we'd all look like woolly mammoths or something because that's how we would have had to evolve. That's how life would have had to shape itself. If we were a little bit closer to the sun, you know, we'd have to live underground or something. This is James Lovelock, who came up with the Gaia hypothesis. The climate and chemical properties of the Earth now and throughout its history seem always have to have been optimal for life. For this to have happened by chance is as unlikely as to survive unscathed driving blindfold through rush hour traffic. What is going on here? It's something quite unusual. The great biologist E.O. Wilson says, imagine walking from the center of the earth out to the surface. You walk for several months through molten hot lava and then through hardened mountains of rock and the last 15, 20 minutes of your walk 
you start to see little microbes and, uh, and bacteria in the water table and then a few worms and then you break through the surface of the earth and there are millions of species of life everywhere in every nook and cranny. It's just teeming with life. And then just a few minutes later after you pass through this crust, there's, there's no longer anything living and it's just all, all uh, concentrated on the surface of this little planet. This is uh, Richard Dawkins, one of the most serious objective scientists around. My overwhelming reaction to the story of evolution is one of amazement. The universe could so easily have remained lifeless and simple, just physics and chemistry, just the scattered dust of the cosmic explosion that gave birth to time and space. The fact that it did not, the fact that life evolved out of nearly nothing, some 10 billion years after the universe evolved out of literally nothing, is a fact so staggering that I would be mad to attempt words to convey it properly. And even that is not the end of the matter. Not only is life on this planet amazing and deeply satisfying to all whose senses have not become dulled by familiarity, the very fact that we have evolved the brain power to understand our evolutionary genesis redoubles the am amazement and compounds the satisfaction. We're like in this dance. We've been, life in, has been in this dance with nature and the elements. Starting with bacteria, with single-celled beings, and then changing shape and growing new appendages and new ways of sensing and new camouflage and new ways of eating and uh, like dancing with what nature demanded of her life and eventually coming to us. You know, a couple billion years ago, there were no legs. There were a lot of living creatures, but there were no legs because there was no land for creatures to walk on. The Buddha said, this body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. I, I quoted that line in the, my first talk, and it always, it always uh, seems like a revelation. We so are, are, are fixated on the idea that we created ourselves. Now we have this incredible story about how we got here, at least... Uh, we have unraveled our biological karma. At least we have this picture of how we arrived in this form and with these particular brains. Let's go into our, uh, the wonder of ourselves here for a minute. We're an amazing uh, creature, organism. Creature always seemed like a something creepy, you know. <laughs> I'd like you to feel your heartbeat for a second. Take your hand and put it to your neck or your wrist. And feel that pulse. That muscle that pumps blood throughout your entire body every minute. If you ever look through a microscope, you've seen those little microbial beings and they're all pulsing. Everything that lives seems to have this kind of pulse. You get about five billion heartbeats in an average human life. Someone said that uh, every day your heart is doing the equivalent of lifting a ton and carrying it for a mile or two. It's powerful muscle. 
Now I'd like you to close your eyes for a minute and bring your attention to your head. This big, heavy lump there on top of your shoulders. <laughs> and move your upper and lower teeth together a little bit. You can feel the hardness of your bone. And you can sense the big bone of skull in back there. Five hundred million years of vertebrate evolution to get your head into this shape. The head, you know, we're, we're so identified with our heads, we really think that's where we live, pretty much. I read this uh, explanation of why we have heads. <laughs> I'm actually developing a notebook of, of reasons for everything. And there are, you can find reasons for everything. The reason your ear is shaped like this with a little whorl is so that it catches sound coming from different directions and then automatically sort of signals you where the sound is coming from because of the way the, the ears are shaped. Anyway, the, the head started out, the first head was an extra, an extra clump of cells that appeared around the mouth of these primitive marine creatures so that they could manipulate their mouth better to capture food and push it back. And then the sense, you know, the, the, these cells, these clumps of cells grew to be bigger and bigger and the senses started growing up around the mouth, you know, to hear the food and uh, see the food and make sure that you weren't gonna be made food but basically, the head is there uh, to eat and to find food to eat. I just thought I'd demystify that for you, you know? <laughs> By the way, your, your bones are made of, of calcium phosphate and silicates and... Uh, Basically, the clay of earth molded into your shape. I mean, where, do you, where, do, where did these bodies come from? We came out of the earth. We have this sense that we were somehow placed here. We somehow came from some, somewhere else. Your bones are, uh, are basically clay. Most of your body is, is liquid, and most of that liquid has the chemical consistency of the ocean. We're not just on the earth, we're of the earth. We're like earth sprouts, you know, <laughs> that gained a lot of mobility. Earth sitting on earth, earth walking on earth. I will read from a little bit from my latest book. Speaking of uh, reasons for things, my latest book, Crazy Wisdom Saves the World Again. <laughs> In the early days of human speech, it wasn't so easy to tell stories because our lips and tongue weren't coordinated enough to put a lot of sounds together. Back then, it was basically, uh-huh, or uh-uh, yum, or yuck. <laughs> but we quickly got good at talking, and soon we're saying things like, let's get something to eat, and your place or mine, <laughs> etc. Scientists believe that talking, sharing information with each other, gossiping, telling stories, fetching, contributed to a large increase in human brain size. Proof of the importance of language is the fact that a disproportionately large part of our brain is devoted to the movement of the tongue and lips. 
Words became so vital to our survival and dominance on the planet that nature has now installed in us a biological program for language. It's a built-in feature and we are each born with the ability to put words together grammatically, the so-called language instinct. We are born to yak. An unintended, unintended consequence of having so much of our brain connected to the movement of our tongue and lips may be our love of kissing. The other primates don't go around kissing all the time, puckering their lips when they meet each other. <laughs> the origin of kissing must be in those extra nerve endings that enabled our language. I talk, therefore I kiss. <laughs> kissing, talking, telling stories, what a wise and lovable species we are. With this mouth, I sing praises to Mother Nature for this mouth. Now we come to the big, really big cause for wonder, your senses. Uh, close your eyes for a few moments and just listen to the sounds around you. And uh, as you hear the so-called, the sounds that, that are supposedly around you, remember that the outside world is completely silent, that all of these sounds do not exist outside of your head as these sounds. Okay. You can open your eyes. And... Nature has evolved this amazing Rube Goldberg kind of sound system so that you can read the environment at a distance uh, by hearing it inside your head, hearing events that happen inside your head. Right now I'm moving my lips flapping the air, getting the air waving, and it is moving through air and hitting your eardrum and uh, moving three little bones that then jiggle this little pool of liquid that excites some hairs that then goes in and excites some nerve endings that send signals to the auditory section of the brain that then translates this into what you are hearing now. It all happens inside your head. And not only that, you, you automatically, with hardly any effort at all, hear these sounds and turn it into meaning. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Our ears pluck meaning and, and music out of the air constantly. Now, look around, and what you will see is a painting by the greatest artist who ever lived. A three-dimensional, continually changing canvas, painted by your eyes and your brain. What you are seeing is not the original. What you are seeing is painted inside your head. I mean, first of all, there are no colors or hues in nature. We are able to pick up different wavelengths of radiation and create these colors, but everything's actually pretty dull until we look at it. Right now, streams of, pro of photons are being projected onto the screen of your retina, which contains over 100 million receptor cells which turn beams of photons into electrical signals and they are sent to the visual cortex of your brain. These are electrical signals being sent back there, not a picture, just signals, pulses that have different, different wavelengths. And then your brain goes into the, like this conference call. You know, 30 different parts of the brain come in and they say, what do we want, what do we want Wes to see now? What, do we, what does he need to see? What is it? Uh, and, and they put together the picture. And then they flash it to me in moments, of, moment after moment of conscious uh, seeing. But it's not the original that I'm seeing. We're all painting all the time these amazing uh, canvases. This is... Uh, 
Alfred North Whitehead. Actually, first let me read the, this Charlie, Charlie Darwin. He wrote, uh, the eye is just a small piece of flesh built of sugars, fats, water, and a little protein, yet it has millions of precisely calibrated moving parts. To suppose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely com confess, absurd in the highest degree. So he was even questioning that such a, such a magnificent instrument could have been created through his, his theory of, of how things evolve. So your mind and senses are the true creators of this sound and light show that, that you're seeing. Alfred North Whitehead, the various qualities of the world are purely the creation of the mind. Nature always gets credit, which should in truth be reserved for ourselves. The rose gets credit for its scent, the nightingale for its song, the sun for its radiance. But the poets are mistaken. They should address their lyrics to themselves. So all your dreams of being an artist are fulfilled. You don't have to go to music lessons anymore, you know. Next time you hear the symphony on radio, just you're, you're, you're doing it. <laughs> Whitman, Walt Whitman said, Oh, to have my life henceforth, my poem of joy. Have my life, my poem of joy. Okay, now I just want to do one more thing here tonight. This is kind of a pet uh, project of mine, uh, is to marry the Dharma to the story of evolution. Uh, I think we need this story. I think we desperately need it. Our, our religions have come to regard the Earth as just a, a, a training planet, you know, where you come to burn off some karma or learn some lessons, and then you get to go off to where you truly belong. I think that those stories are dysfunctional for us now. I think we need a new story that brings us together. As, as I, I think I said on the first night, I quoted uh, Joseph Campbell, we need a new myth that connects us to each other and to all the life of the planet and to the cosmos. Uh, and I think the story of evolution is our, our new guiding myth. And it supports all of what the Buddha taught. Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, I mean, they're all so deeply embedded in the story. I want to read from Darwin. This is the last paragraph of uh, The Origin of Species. There is a simple grandeur in this view of life with its powers of growth, assimilation, and reproduction being originally breathed into matter under one or a few forms and that while this, our planet has gone circling on according to fixed laws and land and water in a cycle of changes have gone on replacing each other so that from so simple an origin through the process of gradual selection of infinite, infinitesimal changes, en endless forms most beautiful and wonderful have been evolved. Endless forms most beautiful and wonderful have been evolved. Uh, <laughs> after hearing the theory of evolution 150 years ago in England, the wife of the, uh, uh, the Duchess of Earls said, Descended from apes? Let us hope it is not true. But if it is, let us pray that it will not become generally known. Darwin said that, that he, he thought that writing about his understanding and his theory was like confessing, it was like a murder, like confessing a murder. Uh, because he was really, it was a real, really dangerous thing to do, and it was, it was so revolutionary to tell people that this is how things happened on this planet. This is how we got into this form. I think that if we could embrace the story of evolution and embrace our identity as part of the life of this planet, we would find forgiveness, we would find uh, self-liberation, 
we would find connectedness. We would find hope. And we would find as much awe and wonder as in any, any Bible. Let me just go through these just briefly. Forgiveness. If we see ourselves in the story of evolution, we realize that we are a baby species. There were 100 million generations of dinosaurs, 50 million generations of mammals before humans came along. We've had maybe 10 or 20,000 generations of modern Homo sapiens. We just got these big brains. We don't know how to use them very well yet. They didn't come with an instruction manual. So it's clear, humans should not be tried as adults. <laughs> we are all forgiven. We are all forgiven. If we see ourselves in the story of evolution, we are connected intimately with everything that's ever lived. Through the miracle molecule of DNA, composed of four chemical compounds, and depending on how they're arranged in these long strings of coded information, the DNA will contribute to the growth of a sequoia or a rose or an ant or a human being. It's like a miracle molecule that separates life from non-life. Deoxyribonucleic acid I, I'm, is such a cold and clinical term, a word, you know. I, I've created a new acronym Whenever you hear or see the letters DNA, think divine, natural abundance. Because the DNA grows all of these different forms of life. And as you may know, your DNA is almost 100% identical to the DNA of the person sitting next to you. The instructions for building and maintaining you are almost exactly the same as the instructions for building and maintaining me and the Dalai Lama and George Bush and <laughs> Oprah and Mother Teresa, Paris Hilton. I mean, it's our, our IQ and our, and our uh, personality and our differences in looks are just a thin coat of paint over the basic human design, which takes so much information to create and to run. We share, as you probably know, over eight. 98% of our DNA with the great apes. We also share over 90% with mice. Most of that information in our DNA is information for building a basic mammal, which in itself is quite a complicated uh, organism, even mice. We share nearly 70% of our DNA with worms and nearly 50% with yeast. <laughs> So if we declare ourselves divine, is not the slime also divine? And if not, where do you draw the line? What's divine? Who gets a soul? See, the story of evolution doesn't deny our divinity or the sacredness of who we are, but it denies our exclusive divinity. It connects us to everything that's ever lived. We are a new kind of animal, however. I hope you aren't offended by being called an animal. It is how our eminent scientists classify us. Some of you are in denial, I know that. You go to a supermarket or a cafe and there's a sign in the window, no animals allowed, people walk right, right in. <laughs> no animals here. I think we should be proud to be part of this magnificent kingdom of beautifully arrayed creatures. But we, we did, uh, our ancestors just came out down from the trees about five million years ago. Among them was an ape woman named Lucy, who the scientists call Lucy, who they say was the mother of us all. So we can assume that the father of us all was Ricky. <laughs> And we started 
we started hanging out on the ground and we made crude stone tools and we became what we now call homo habilis handyman and handyman started standing upright more often and pretty soon we became what we now call homo erectus or upright human and standing up seems to have been a huge uh, moment in our evolution because it's associated with a rapid increase in our brain size. We, we stood up at the same time that our, uh, the size of our brains exploded. Um, now you'd think that standing up would cause our feet to swell, you know, that, but this is the theory. Standing up left our hands free to work with tools and we needed more brain connections to manipulate the more precise movement of our hands and fingers. So this feedback loop was created, bigger brains and better hands, better hands, bigger brains. And also, standing up left our arms free to carry our stuff around so we could start moving, you know. Uh, and somewhere back then, about a million years ago or so, we started migrating out of Africa. Nobody knows exactly why we left. I suspect it was to look for Chinese food. <laughs> At the time, our brains were only half the size they are today, or else we would have figured out how to send out for Chinese food. <laughs> we started wandering around the planet. Brains kept growing. Our brains kept growing. They were, they were such a miraculous instrument. Uh, there's some speculation that they grew in spurts and often during times of uh, ice age, very cold weather when we had to think hard and fast how to stay warm. And uh, we got brains big enough to learn how to make fire and, and then began sitting around that fire and telling stories about ourselves, about our origins. And uh, then about 40,000 years ago, oh, our, our brains got so big at one point, we had, had to actually grow a new skull to hold them. You know, this, uh, at some point the skull became rounded and dome-shaped in front. Uh, probably none of you are old enough to remember the old slope head model <laughs> skull. That went. The, the brain had to become rounded and dome-shaped to hold the neocortex, which was growing, growing big. So 40,000 years ago, uh, our kind of our immediate ancestors, the Cro-Magnon people appeared. They began uh, having elaborate burial rituals, making masks and jewelry, having come to some new kind of self-consciousness, having become what we now think of as homo sapiens sapiens, or twice wise humans, twice knowing. We know that we know at this point. Um, I think the Cro-Magnon people were also the first to uh, display a sense of humor, which they got by watching Neanderthals work with tools, you know. <laughs> they kept dropping them and they just didn't have it together. So then 10,000 years ago, our, really, our new human brain really kicks in and our, our ancestors begin doing agriculture, living in cities. The last 10,000 years has been a complete revolution in the life of this planet due to our behavior of our species. And now we can fly off the planet, we can see to the edges of the universe, we can see deep inside of matter, we know how things work uh, in nature. Uh, in just the last couple hundred years, we've nearly doubled the average human lifespan. Just a few generations ago, most of our ancestors were peasants. And now most of us are called on to absorb many volumes of information in a lifetime and operate fairly complex machinery. Actually, when you think about our situation and how we're doing, and you think about it in the, in the history of this story, uh, you realize we're doing pretty good being humans. I mean, we're, we're, we're just trying to learn how to navigate this new environment that we have created. And it's an awesome task. The, the evolutionary biologists say we're still working with brains designed primarily for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers, which explains our addiction to shopping. 
you know, if it's out there, you go get it. <laughs> By the way, this is Black Friday. You're missing the sales, you know. <laughs> There'll be time. There'll be time. But it does seem like we're doing a, a pretty good job of being humans. And also, when you see the history of life in this big panorama, you start to, to realize that we're just now waking up to a whole new level of understanding of who we are. You see the Buddha and Socrates and Lao Tzu 2,500 years ago, which is a blink of an eye uh, in evolutionary time. A whole new understanding, a whole new way of seeing ourselves. And now we have uh, basically our contemporaries, Darwin, Freud, Jung, Einstein, Hubble. We have a whole new picture of who we are in the scheme of things. And uh, we're learning how connected we are to everything else and, and how much we've just started learning how much we're damaging the earth by our great success as a species. We've become so successful that we that we we're, we we're like a pestilence. We've become so successful, successful. But we're just understanding that, and I think that's really something that's important to remember as we face what we're facing as a species. Uh, that uh, the word ecology didn't really come into public use until about 1970. That we're we're just really getting a sense. It's it's brand new our understanding of, of how we're, how we're uh, harming the planet. So when you see it in that picture, I, you, you can find hope and uh, optimism, some kind of optimism that will make it and, you know, see what, what else will happen and what other wonders will appear on this little planet spinning through space. E.O. Wilson, the biologist, says, the chances of producing a human being through random chance in the universe is like imagining a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and creating a 747. <laughs> Something is going on here. And meditation practice is so wonderful because it really does begin to bring us into feeling the mystery here inside of us and seeing with eyes that are a little less clouded with familiarity. Uh, and I think this kind of awe and enchantment with the world are really revolutionary acts. Wonder is very fulfilling. It means that you don't have to consume so much to feel satisfied, at ease, connected, in love. So, I'll close with Rumi. This place is a dream. And this groggy time we live in, this is what it's like. A man goes to sleep in the town where he's always lived and he dreams he's living in another town. In the dream, he doesn't remember the town he's sleeping in his bed in. He believes the reality of the dream town. The world is that kind of sleep. The dust of many crumbled cities settles over us like a forgetful doze. We are older than those cities. We began as mineral. We emerged into plant life and into the animal state and then into being human and always we've forgotten our former states except maybe in early spring when we slightly recall being green again. Humankind is being led along an evolving course through this migration of intelligences and though we seem to be sleeping there is an inner wakefulness that directs the dream and that will eventually startle us back to the truth who we are. Let's sit for a minute and 
as you feel yourself with a kind of beginner's mind, ask, what is this warm, energized, self-regulating, self-knowing, vibratory field of mystery seated here? What is breath? What is sentience? What is life? These questions are koans, just a skillful means. Be here while Thank you for being part of our collective awakening. We have a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.